Hi, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Alexandra Aldrich, the author of The Aster Orphan, which is just out from Echo Books. And hi, Alexandra. Hello. The Aster Orphan, most of the story takes place during a very narrow sliver of time when you were 10 years old and you were living at your family estate. And the family estate plays a really crucial role in your story and your family story. So I'd like to talk about, is it, it's pronounced Rokeby? Yes. Okay. Okay, so Rokeby is a 450-acre estate with a 43-room mansion that has been in my family for over 300 years. It was originally part of a land grant from King James II to Robert Livingston, my ancestor. When I came along, it was already the 70s, and my family was still reeling from the death of my great-grandmother, Margaret Chandler Aldrich, who died in 1963. She was um, one of the so-called Astor orphans, 11 children who were orphaned in the 1870s and raised at Rokeby by guardians. Uh, they were the great-grandchildren of William B. Astor, who also lived at Rokeby, married into the Livingston family. That was in the early 19th century. And William B. was the brother of John Jacob? No, no the no. son. The he was son. a son, and he actually went into business with John Jacob Astor. He it was in the American Fur Company. And when he, when he, his father died in 1848, he became the richest man in America and invested most of his inheritance in New York City real estate. And by the time that things had come down to your parents' generation and your generation, subsequent descendants of the Astor orphans were not as let's say, fortunate with their, their investments? or the or Correct. Well, <laughs> well, first of all, the Astor orphans inherited approximately $5 million from William B. Astor in the 1870s. Then there were 11 of them. Uh, eight of them lived into adulthood. So the, that fortune was divided up. And my great-grandmother, Margaret, lived as the sole owner of Rokeby from 1900 to 1963. She bought out her siblings. And she lived to be almost 100. And she had a house in New York City. She had Rokeby, and she managed Rokeby very well because she had a staff of workers. She ran a dairy farm at a loss, also for over 60 years, on the property. So by the time we came along, the family was determined to hold on to this property, but they hadn't inherited any money. My grandmother inherited it with her three children, including my father. They did not really know how to manage this property. Before that, everything, un until 1963, my great-grandmother managed this, she ran a very tight ship, and there was no question of who was in control. But now there were four owners, they didn't know how to share, they didn't, they had conflicting visions of what they wanted the property to become. My uncle treated the house as a house museum. The formal front rooms, of about 11 rooms, were uh, used for historical societies to come tour the house. There's a, a grand drawing room with two grand, Steinway grands, two fireplaces with marble mantelpieces, an octagonal library with approximately 4,000 leather-bound books from the 18th century or earlier. And there's a the home parlor, a dining room, and a reception room. So, And then there are four um, very formal guest rooms on the second floor. So although they were not in perfect condition when I was growing up, they were they were considered the formal front part of the house. And you and your family, including your aunt and uncle and your cousins, along with your parents, are living in the back of the house. Well, well, my uncle and his family lived in the back, and they had about eight rooms. They had a very spacious apartment, while my parents and I lived on the third floor in a three-room apartment among the broken furniture and hallways cluttered with odds and ends. We weren't allowed to use the antiques because they were for show. So the contrast was obscene. We lived in this very squalid, dumpy apartment. We didn't have furniture because my father 
had chosen not to get a career out in the real world. He had chosen to come back to Rokeby with the expectation of being, I think, a gentleman farmer. But because he didn't have money to hire help, he ended up being becoming the maintenance man. And because he was one of the owners, he didn't get paid. So my parents and I had no income, no income at all. So I slept on a metal cot, and we had car seats for recliners in our living room. We borrowed money for groceries. We lived on dented TV dinners donated by the local pie factory and venison donated by local hunters. Fortunately, my grandmother, who lived down the hill in a different house, was had some money, and she helped. Um, so I didn't go to school barefoot. I, I wasn't. It didn't seem to the outside world that that we were poor. And I think people assumed that my father was just an eccentric because he had a very filthy appearance, it still does, due to the nature of his work. He'd be climbing into trenches, he'd be fixing the sewer, the sewer system, so he'd be covered with any substances that he'd been working with that day and rarely cleaned himself because he was, all the adults in my life were sort of in an obsessive state. They were all preoccupied. And he was too preoccupied with caring for Rokeby, which was, a, you know, not a one-man job, to take, for, to do any self-care. So I ended up being his caretaker, and at a young age, because I was very embarrassed at his appear by his appearance, I would clean him. I would brush his teeth and cut the, the gnarls out of his hair and scrub the oil out of his skin and clip his nails, um, hoping that I could make him look presentable. In the summer that you write about in The Astro Orphan, the, the home situation is complicated by the fact that he is basically, even with your mother still, you know, you and your mother and him are, are living in the apartment, and he's moved his his mistress into another apartment on the complex. It, it, it was very complicated and confusing because nobody explained to me what was going on. So there was this woman who just suddenly appeared, a uh, French woman, and she... I, I, at first, I thought she was just one of my father's uh, followers because he had, I call them protégés in the book. My father has always had a group of people who wanted to learn from him, were amazed by him, wanted to hear his stories. He's, he's really charismatic. But I was confused because she's a female and, and he never had women following him around before. You know, he usually had sort of young men in their 20s who was kind of lost and, and needed uh, some guidance. As, so as the story progresses, I become more and more aware of what's going on. At first, I see how my grandmother is reacting to her, and she um, is hurling insults at her, calling her a harlot and a homewrecker, which words I didn't understand at that age, not at, at age 10. But I saw that there was obviously something wrong here. So I, I longed for some honest dialogue about what was going on, and nobody explained anything to me. And I couldn't talk about my feelings because I was discouraged. My family basically gave me the message that discussing feelings is a sign of weakness, is embarrassing, is even impolite. By age 10, even with all the things that you weren't sure about, you knew enough to know that this this home life was not normal. It was something that you had to get away from. Well, first of all, there was just, because of this repression of emotion and, you know, the discourage, discouragement from speaking about one's feelings, um, the adults really behaved very inappropriately. They acted out. Um, and there was a lot of hysterical, violent, behavior. So that I, that was one reason why I wanted to get away. And because it was summer, you're mentioning the summertime, um, I wasn't in school. School was my outlet. That was my refuge from the craziness of Rokeby. There I had structure. The teachers loved me. I had clear instruction. And that's what I always wanted. I just wanted to have clear explanations for what I, what needs to be done. And um, so that's why I loved school. Otherwise, yeah, I was I was trapped in this self-contained universe. The only co contact with the outside world that I had was really through my grandmother, besides for, aside from school, of course. She was an alcoholic, but she was also 
the most structured person in my life um, because she came from very good families. There, there were she didn't come from eccentric aristocratic families. She came from the Fishes on her mother's side. Hamilton Fish the third was her uncle, congressman for over twenty years. Her father was senior partner at Smith Barney uh, from 1920 to 1950. So she had a very a very healthy approach to just living life and she had friends and she'd bring me to tea parties with old lady friends and those were very proper she'd bring me to classical music concerts she brought me to church um so those were that was my contact with the outside world that outside world was never allowed to come into rokeby i understood very well that there had to be a boundary the only people who came to rokeby were my parents friends and i understood my mother is a polish artist and her friends were bohemian hippies and my father's friends were mostly you know ice boaters carpenters real people but not not fancy people the way that you write about it it becomes really clear that rokeby has become sort of a millstone around your family's neck at that point i mean as you say your parents generation is basically inheriting property without any money. So they have this legacy, but they don't really have any way to sustain it other than sort of like limping along. And yet, at least at the time that you're writing about, emotionally it feels like they're, un they're unable to break away from it, to, to sim simply make a clean break and say, you know what, maybe we don't need this sprawling mansion like sucking us down mm -hmm. and keeping us in poverty. Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely on the level of obsession. Mm -hmm. To keep this property what meant everything to my father and his brother. That's something that's the only thing they shared. Otherwise they were total opposites. And the idea of letting go of rope beam would mean becoming regular people and having to fend for them fend for ourselves in the real world. So it wasn't just a question of not wanting to. I think they they felt they couldn't. There was my father for example, is so brilliant. He went to Harvard and they went to Johns Hopkins. He definitely was qualified to get a wonderful career, but even if he'd wanted a career, he wasn't really capable of working by other people's rules, um, doing tasks that other people gave him to do, having to come to work by 9 or 10 a.m. That, that feeling of not being, not being able to leave because not being able to become ordinary was really um, a dreadful, a dreadful sense. Um, and I saw my father give everything to this property and have, until today, he's over 70, still does all the work on his own. And when I was a kid, I, I write about how, how abused he was by the rest of the family. He was doing all the work and, and his mother constantly scolded him and called him a good for nothing for not having a real job. And his brother had to lend him money for the taxes, for his share of the taxes. So I felt as a child that I had to protect him, but I didn't have a voice because I was outnumbered. So I, I felt that I failed as his protector. Yeah, there is this sort of undercurrent of defensiveness, and it's kind of a mixture of sympathy and shame uh, that you're feeling as, you, as you're telling this story, because on the one hand, he's your father and you love him, but on the other hand, it's like, this is a massively screwed up situation, and, and you know it is. So I felt once he started having an affair and I realized that he was, I, I felt he, was, he had betrayed himself. Before And, of course, he had betrayed me and my mother as well. He basically gave justification to the rest of the family to criticize him. At that point, I, I didn't feel that I could defend him, even if I had the voice anymore. When it came time to write about this as a memoir, I mean, were you keeping diaries or journals when you were 10, or is this all sort of recreating 
from memory? Well, I, I always kept journals. I've always been a private writer. This is my first book. But um, yeah, since, for, since a very young age, because as I said before, I couldn't talk about my feelings to anybody. So the only way that I could express myself was through journal writing. In fact, my sixth grade teacher read many, many of my journal entries because I had a journal I kept at school. And I ran into her a couple of years ago and she said, uh, I told her I was writing this book and she said, I remember those days how anxious you were before PTA about how your father would be dressed and the kind of car he'd come in to the school. So yes, I, I did keep journals, but a lot of the events in this story are part of my father's story lore. My father lives for stories. This is one, one quality that makes him a true aristocrat. He doesn't care about money. He, he doesn't mind having no money. Everything's an adventure for him uh, to generate stories. He gets on the phone every morning. He, he wants to hear the latest gossip. He spreads gossip. So what does he think uh, and what does other family members think about these stories being out in the world now? Well, my father actually, surprisingly enough, approved of the book. He said that the only mistake I, I had I'd made a few errors in um, details about the farm machinery. So he didn't find it offensive that I'd written about his affair. And my mother feels that the story is very accurate. She's not, no parent wants to read that their child was miserable growing up. The rest of the family, my aunt has read it and said that this is the daughter of my grandmother. And it was very painful for her to read because she felt like she was reliving a lot of this. She wasn't here, here most of the time. She was um, living in France. And then I don't know about the rest. I think some people are refusing to read it because they don't want to know what I wrote. In the author bio here, it mentions that, and I should I should clarify this first by saying that you chose to end right as you've gotten away from Rokeby and headed off to, to boarding school. And in the memoir here, you talk about how after that you've moved to Poland, you studied violin history, and then you've come back and, and you've done a lot of other things, including converting. And it's like, I mean, clearly there are more memoirs in you. <laughs> what sort of prompted the decision to confine this particular book rather than trying to write like something that encompassed a wider stretch of, of your life's arc? How did you choose to focus on this formative period? Well, I wanted this to be a book about Rokeby and my childhood there. Originally, I had envisioned a book structured similarly to The Color of Water, alternating chapters between my narrative and my father's. But I ended up integrating many of his stories into my own narrative. It was just too hard to structure it the other way. So this is, this is, much of the book is, is about the past. It's not just, it's not just my story. It's about the past. I use historical anecdotes to explain the behavior and character traits of many of the adults in my life and to explain myself. After 14, there was no, it had nothing to do, my story had nothing to do with Rokeby anymore. It's a different story. And were there other memoirs or, or memoir writers? You mentioned that The Color of Water was an early model that you sort of veered away from. Were there other models of memoir writing that stuck with you or resonated with you? Well, yes. Uh, when I decided that I was going to write a memoir, I started reading childhood memoirs. Uh, Mary Carr's Liars Club, Augustine Burroughs, um, Running with Scissors and Dry, but, but more Running with Scissors at the beginning because that was a childhood memoir. And I... Well, I especially loved Burroughs' writing because it's so honest. And I, I just wanted to get a sense of what, how, how these people had structured their childhood stories and what they could and couldn't do, what's acceptable in memoir writing. And when I saw that he uses so much dialogue, I was thrilled because I love dialogue. So I also incorporate a tremendous amount of dialogue, um, which is obviously recreated. Some of it I feel is verbatim because... My, I can remember my grandmother's voice so well. Some of the things she said, she said over and over again. 
In any case, yes, I was very inspired by, by the honesty. I felt that gave me license to be completely honest. Memoir, is, I realized, is all about exposure. In terms of that exposure and exposing yourself to these memories, yeah, as we said, clearly your life has changed dramatically since you were 14. And obviously you, you still carry those childhood experiences around with you throughout your life. But it's something different still between carrying them with you and then like actually sitting down and sorting through them and picking them apart and really digging into them. Well, I became Jewish in 1998, and I spent some time before that studying to become Jewish, an Orthodox Jew. At the point when I converted, I was told that everything that happened before is erased. And, you, you know, you take on a new soul, you take on new ancestors, you are part of the Jewish people. So I loved that idea. I thought, oh, this is it. I've cleared my past. I don't have to think about it anymore. For a while, I, I lived under the illusion that that could be the case. But uh, eventually, during my divorce uh, in 2005, I had to move back to Rokeby for a while. And then the, everything flooded back when I was back in the same place where I'd grown up. Um, and the story had to be written. There was no, there was no debating it at that point. And is that when it re- the, the idea really sort of crystallized for you? Well, not right away. Uh, in 2005, when I came back, I became consumed by the same energy that I tried to get away from and that everyone who lives there is consumed by. I need. I started fixing everything that I could get my hands on. Everything needed to be painted. And whatever I could do with my, in my, with my limited skills, I started to do. And I began cleaning the barnyard and the dump which if you read, once you read the book, you understand that the barnyard is just full of car transmissions and old washing machines and cast iron bathtubs. So I started, I got on the backhoe, which I eventually learned to, to drive. I started pulling scrap metal out of the barn barnyard and, and the dump and loading it onto my dad's dump truck and taking it over to um, the scrapyard across the river. I'm and, surprised he let you do that because it's well, it was the very memoir, tricky so. business, and yeah. a lot of the scrap metal was <laughs> hidden in the woods because my dad is afraid of people like me coming and making creating order. So I actually would have, you know, I took, I went all over the property, and as I was driving in this backhoe all over the property, it just brought back so many memories of all these places that I'd been as a kid um, and wandered around and played in, and the backhoe itself brought back so many memories because it, it part of me is a farm girl. I grew up with my dad. I adored my dad. I followed him everywhere on his rounds around the property. So not until 2008 did I start writing because I finally realized I'm not going to ever clean the place up. It's impossible because as as much as I took away, my dad brought more in. So it never got – I couldn't clean it. So I I decided I could at least resolve some of my issues internally. As we mentioned, this is your first memoir and your first book. Is is writing – something that you had been pursuing up to that point, and then this was the project that clicked, or was this really the project that made you a writer? As a teenager, uh, I always believed I would become a writer. Um, my English teachers always loved my writing, encouraged me. And then later on, in, in college, I, I guess part, you know, part of me always has internalized the judgment of my grandmother and my uncle against artists and writers and anybody who's not, you know, straight-laced. So... I guess in college I majored in, in history and I, I didn't want to pursue writing because I thought oh, that's not a real profession. Um, and it took me a long time to get to the point where I actually had time to write. It, it was definitely part of my childhood dreams, but like I said, in my 20s I never wrote anything. As this project coalesced into the final version of the Aster Orphan that we have here, before we started recording, we, we got a great visit from uh, your editor, Hillary Redmond, and you mentioned in the acknowledgments that she was a, a big help in sort of seeing this book through to fruition. 
Yes, but actually I worked with Ann Patty. She's also in the uh, acknowledgments. I worked with her privately beforehand. I thought after a year and a half of writing that I was finished. And I didn't know what finished meant. And then I started working with Anne, and she helped me restructure a lot of the book and said you have to take she, – she made me take out about half of it. Echo didn't buy it until t- 2012. And then Hillary Redman um, started working with me on it, and she wanted me to rewrite the first 50 pages. So it's gone through so many edits and so many tweaks, and now I know what it really means to write a book. As we mentioned before, it's like your life after the Astor Orphan is easily – at least one more memoir, probably two or three in there. <laughs> Having done this once, do you feel up to tackling it again and talking about another section of your life? Oh, easily, easily. I, I, I really would love to write fiction, and I feel that writing memoir is easier. So I, I wish I could – part of me wants to make the part of my life experiences into a novel, but I've been discouraged by other people who say that memoir is more popular, and so I, I'm still debating whether it's going to be fiction or nonfiction. We'll look forward to seeing what choice you make with that. Uh, In the meantime, we have The Aster Orphan. It's a debut memoir by Alexandra Aldrich. It's from Echo Books. And you've been listening to her talk about it on Life Stories with me, Ron Hogan. And I hope you'll tune into another episode again soon. Thanks. Thank Thank you. Thank you.